I came across a very interesting, I guess it's a, really it's a French parable or fable this week that really ties in with the words of Jesus we're going to look at. But there was a, a hen, a mouse, and a rabbit living together. They were roommates. And each of them had different jobs, different responsibilities, and they were very happy and very contented with their lives together. Uh, the rabbit cooked all the meals. The chicken went into the woods and gathered the firewood. And the mouse would go down to the creek and bring up the water. And each one did his work faithfully and contentedly, and they were all incredibly happy. But one day, as the hen was going into the forest, the busybody crow was there. And the crow said something to the hen, having observed her coming and going, asking, what are you doing? And then the crow complained that, from her perspective, it appeared that the hen was doing the hardest part of the work, and the rabbit and the mouse were doing the easy stuff. And uh, try as she would, the hen could not dismiss that thought from her mind. Even when she walked all the way back to the house, it just kept you know, fermenting in her brain, carrying that water. And she got back into the house, and she kind of yelled as a, maybe a hen, maybe cackled as a hen would uh, to the, her roommates, I am doing the hardest work here. We ought to change jobs. And as discontentment tends to do, it spread to the others in the house. And the mouse and the rabbit said, no, you're not doing the hardest work. I'm doing the hardest work. We should change jobs. And so they traded jobs. The rabbit was going to go into the woods to get the firewood. The hen was going to go to the creek and pull up the water. And the mouse was going to stay in the house and cook the food, cook the soup for the next day. And so they all did that. The, the rabbit went out to the woods to get the firewood, but there was a fox in the woods that quickly tailed the rabbit, captured him, and ate him. The hen went down to the creek to put the pail in the water to pull up the water, but the hen was not near as strong as the mouse because the hen was just using her beak, and as the pail went in the water, it pulled the hen in, and the hen was gone. And the, rat, and the, the mouse back in the cabin was wondering what took, was taking everybody so long as he walked around the rim of the soup uh, uh, pot and not being as big as the rabbit cooking the food, the mouse lost his balance and fell in to the soup. All three of them were lost because discontentment had lost all three of them, their happiness and their very lives. And as we're going to see today, in John chapter 6, discontentment within ourselves and other issues can rise and spread and cause great problems in what God desires for our lives. We're going to be in John chapter 6, the very end of the chapter, on page 892. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack there, if you're not, then it's probably not the same page. But if one on the rack, it's 892. It'll also be on the screens here. If you're watching online, it'll pop up right below me. But all the notes and everything's on our website, too, dequeen.church. You can find our notes um, there that go along with this message. John chapter 6. Now, this series we've been looking at, Bread and Water, it's about you know, teachings of Jesus that has to do with bread and water. And it really, this John chapter 6, is a glimpse into two days in the life of Jesus. One day, he uh, taught all day long and then fed the 5,000 at the end of the day. 
He dismissed the crowd, went up on a mountain to pray, dismissing the disciples. They crossed the lake. Overnight, they were going to cross the lake and get to the other side. And a storm arose, and they could not get to the other side. And so Jesus came down from the mountain, walked on water to the disciples in the middle of the night, got into the boat, and then the boat was immediately, immediately at the other side of the lake. And so they got out, and the crowd woke up the next morning, could not find Jesus, began to search for him all around the lake, found him on the other side, did not know how he got there. They asked him how he got there. He didn't tell them. He just gave them this teaching that we get for the rest of John chapter 6. And Jesus is emphasizing to them that they need to believe in him to receive eternal life. And he uses the illustration that he is the bread of life, whereas the day before they wanted bread to eat, and he gave it to them, physical, uh, physically eat. Now he wanted to give them spiritual bread that they could live on and have eternal life. And he says, I am that bread. Believe in me, and you will receive eternal life. And the people were having trouble with this. Because throughout Jesus' teaching, it's not something that they simply have to receive and then they can go back to their normal lives. Receiving this bread, believing in Jesus, meant they were going to have to retool how they operated in their lives, how they functioned. They were going to have to change the way they behaved. And they were not down with that. And so they had a problem with that, as we saw last week. We're going to look again this morning in verse uh, 60 of John chapter 6. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Having told them all these things. He says, am I offending you by telling you this? They're grumbling. It says they're grumbling among themselves, but him being Jesus knows what they're saying, knows that they're grumbling, knows that they're complaining, knows that they're having a hard time with what he's saying. And he says, are you offended that I'm telling you this, that you need to believe and you need to change your lifestyle. And it was very clear. It wasn't simply that he was using metaphor and illustration that they did not grasp. They did. They understood it. But the fact that, uh, that they understood it was the problem because they didn't want to change what they were doing. They didn't want to change their lifestyle. They didn't want to change everything they knew. They didn't want to have to adopt a new belief system. They liked the old one. The old one just said, because of your bloodline, you get to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with, with believing in anything. You just got to you know, be a Jew and you're good to go. And Jesus said, that's not what Scripture says at all. You guys missed it. All throughout, all what they're teaching you in the Scripture, it says that you've got to believe, even going so, uh, so far back as Abraham, who believed that it was credited to him as righteousness, which is Bible speak for he was saved. You believe, that's where it starts. Even with Abraham, before the law was ever introduced, Salvation came through belief. And so here, Jesus is saying, am I offending you at what I'm saying? Knowing that they were being offended by what he was saying. And so, uh, you know, people being offended isn't a new development. You know, I mean, I know in today's day and time, you can be offended for breathing the wrong way. Or you can offend somebody because you're breathing the wrong way. Or because you're dressed the wrong way. Or because you look the wrong way. Or because you vote the wrong way. Or because, you know, you like the wrong sports team. Or because you part your hair on the wrong side of your head. People can be offended about all kinds of things. Well, here, Jesus is telling them, the way for eternal life is believing in me. And the people are offended. Look at verse 62. Jesus is still talking. He says, then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, he gives a prophecy here. This happens in Acts chapter 1. 
Jesus ascends to heaven. He says, okay, you're offended by me just saying you believe in the Son of God. We'll wait till the Son of God goes to heaven. Now, some of the, in that crowd will be there that day. Some of them will, not all of them, obviously. I mean, this, is, this crowd is probably thousands. Some of them are about to have a big problem. And he says, so you're offended by me just saying you've got to believe in me. Well, wait till that day. You would be big time offended by that if you're offended by this. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He says the flesh is no help at all. The flesh, what you have within you, you cannot accomplish life. You cannot accomplish eternal life. You can't make it on your own. You need the Spirit to accomplish this. It is a spiritual undertaking that is belief. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Which is also interesting. Jump to, this is just totally an aside. Jump down to verse 70 real quick. Look at this. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, speaking to the twelve disciples? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke, I, don't, I don't recommend saying that to your Sunday school class this morning. <laughs> I'm glad you're all here, but one of you is a devil. But he, he says that to his disciples. I chose you, but one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see, Jesus knew, even when he chose Judas to come and be a disciple, that Judas would be the one to betray him. Even though Judas was gung-ho on day one, he knew what would happen a couple years later. And he says to the crowd of people standing there, I know some of you do not believe. I know you don't. You're just here because I fed you yesterday. You're just here because I fixed your foot yesterday. You're not here because you believe. I know it. You've got to believe if you want eternal life. He says, I know some of you. Imagine Jesus walking in our church, walking up here on the platform, looking at all your faces, and he says, I know some of you don't believe. Be a little offended at that, don't you think? Well, he's not talking about me. Obviously, he's talking about that guy sitting over there. It's not me, Jesus. I believe, all right? I've got eternal life. But he says this to the crowd. Now, again, if you're thinking in, in 2021 mindset of how to build a following, that's something the marketers will tell you, do not do. <laughs> do everything you can not to offend people. Stay away from those subjects. Stay away from those words. Don't say they don't believe. Just try to, you know, gently guide them in the process. Well, Jesus just lays it out there and says, I know some of you people don't believe, and you're not going to. You're just not. You choose your life over the life that God has. He says, I know some of you don't believe. Look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago. He said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, which Jesus actually says in John 12, the Father draws all people to him. And then some people just reject the Father. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, he's not talking about the 12 here. These are people who had followed him, not just around the lake, but some of these, many of these, would have followed him for quite some time as he was walking through this region. And it says, many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. That, that phrase, turned back, is very interesting. 
It means to literally go back to what lies behind, to what was before. So they left Jesus and, and, and a future with him. They, left Jesus, they stopped walking with him, and they went back to what they knew before, went back to what they had before. They left Jesus to go back to what they had done before because following Jesus in this new way was too difficult. It was, it was too uncomfortable. Uh, it was too unfamiliar. It wasn't like the old ways. It was not at all what they were expecting. It was not at all what they had planned for, and so they left and left Jesus. And now it's easy for us, if you believe in Jesus now, to look at them and say, man, those people were just, they were dumb, man. I mean, they just walked. I mean, yeah, Jesus physically there in front of them, and they walked away. But if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us would be in that same crowd. If we'd been brought up the way they were brought up and confronted in the way Jesus confronted them. And he says, you've got to believe. And along with belief comes a lifestyle change. The lifestyle change isn't necessary for belief, but belief begins to change your life. It can't help but do that. And he says, you've got to believe, and that will adjust the rest of who you are. And they walked away. They walked away from him, walked away from Jesus. When it became difficult, when it meant changing some habits in their life, they walked away. But walking with Jesus is always a good idea. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when people are saying things about the direction you're going because it's something they don't understand, walking with Jesus is always a good idea. Because if we do what these people did and we walk away from Jesus and we turn back, honestly, to what makes other people happy, I mean, it's Galatians 1.10, the moment that I start to serve other people, I stop being a servant of God. And so these people stopped walking with Jesus, stopped serving Jesus because it became too awkward for them. It wasn't what they thought walking with Jesus was going to look like. It wasn't what they had planned for the rest of their lives. Because, I mean, when, when some of his disciples, Peter, for instance, when Peter was called by Jesus to go and follow him, Peter just didn't even blink. He left behind everything. His livelihood, everything he'd worked for, he just walked away from it. And then he had to go home and tell his wife because we know he was married and we know, uh, you know, scholars, really, really smart Bible people tend to think his wife probably traveled with him as in the crowd of disciples. And she was a follower as well in the one of the 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came even. And so Peter walked away. His brother Andrew walked away from everything they knew and followed Jesus. James and John walked away from everything they knew and followed Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, immediately walked away from his entire lifestyle of being a tax collector. And because of the way tax collectors were viewed in first century, you know, cheating people and stealing from them. And as soon as he followed Jesus, Matthew gathered up all of his tax collectors' buddies and had a big dinner where he told them all Jesus was the way to heaven. These are the people who are following Jesus, his 12 disciples. They left everything to follow him. And now these people, this other crowd, are leaving Jesus to go back to everything. But his disciples, his 12, are doing the opposite because walking with Jesus is always a good idea. And so that crowd of thousands walks away. And Jesus turns to his 12 and he asks this question. Verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, 
do you want to go away as well? Do you guys want to leave me too? I mean, here's a crowd uh, just you know, bolting away from Jesus, just leaving him, and probably saying things under their breath as they're going about Jesus, and then begin to spread rumors about Jesus after they left. And Jesus turns to his 12 and says, hey guys, do you want to go too? Now's the time. I mean, you can slip in among the crowd and nobody would know any different. Now's the time. If you're looking for an out, an exit, this is it. Judas, you want to go yet? This is this? No? Okay, you're staying. And look, Peter speaks up. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter said, we've got nowhere else to go, Jesus. We've got nowhere else to go. We burn those ships. This is it. This is the end. We're with you to the end. We've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. See, if what Peter was communicating, and what we have to understand is that life here on earth, life is really all about eternal life. Life is all about eternal life. Life is about going to heaven and taking as many people with us as possible. That's what life is all about. It's not about accumulation. It's not about accruing. It's not about, you know, getting nicer shoes or whatever. It's, it's not about having other people look up to you. It's about eternal life. That's all that life is about. Life is about going to heaven and taking as many people with us as possible. And Peter said, we've got nowhere else to go, Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. That crowd walking away, they don't have eternal, they don't have the words of eternal life. You do. None of them have it. You do. So we're going to stay here. Even if it means it's just us 12. And the crowd booked it. And they're back home doing first century, you know, binge watching on, you know, the wall, I guess. It's first century. But... We're not going to go. We're going to stay with you because you have the words of, a li- uh, of eternal life because that's what life is all about. But I want to really hone in on something in this process here uh, of the end of John chapter 6 is this crowd walking away business and where it began in their mindsets that they were ready to do that, to walk away from Jesus. I mean, imagine being one of the people in that crowd, and that's all that Scripture knows about you and is written about you. You walked away. Man, that would be hard. But they walked away. Well, this is where it started. Uh, Go back up to verse 61. His disciples were grumbling about this. And he said to them, do you take offense at this? That offense, that, that word literally means to cause someone not to believe. So he's telling them, me telling you to believe that this is how you gain eternal life, is that causing you not to believe? Is that too difficult for you? But look at that word grumbling. That's what's interesting. That's what we're going to look at you know, for the rest of this time, our, our time together. Grumbling. It literally means to express discontent or have a complaining attitude. To express discontent or have a complaining attitude. To express discontent or have a complaining attitude. And so they, they were expressing their discontent to G, about Jesus in their crowd to each other. Not They weren't saying it to Jesus. They were saying it to each other. And, and they were having a complaining attitude. But what's interesting about that is being a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us about complaining in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. 
do all things without, what's that word? Grumbling. Didn't we just see that word a second ago? Same word. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So, all things. Is that, you know, most things? Is, you know, is that some of the things, except in people who really irritate you? Is that, you know, do all things without grumbling or disputing, unless it has to do with politicians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, unless that means somebody who's just really obnoxious in the church. Do all things without grumbling. No, it's all things. I mean, it's everything. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, that word disputing, you know what that means? <laughs> that means arguing about differences of opinion. You don't know anybody who does that, right? Do, hey, Tony, put that verse back up for one more second. Do all things without grumbling. So that's complaining, having a complaining attitude or, or being discontented or disputing, arguing about differences of opinion, which is the only reason we argue. So <laughs> he's basically saying never complain, never argue. Now, that doesn't mean you can't disagree, but argument and disagreement are the same thing. Arguing is a lot of times in our motivation and our tone than anything else. So do all things without complaining, being discontent, and arguing. Because look at what he says in the next verse, uh, verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it's a contrast. He's saying if you do complain, if you do argue about differences of opinion, if you are discontented, then you are what he says in that verse. You are a part of a crooked and twisted generation. You are in opposition to God. Who wants to be in opposition to God? Okay, good. <laughs> That's a hard place to be. And Paul's laying this out. The very thing the crowd was doing in their grumbling, they were setting themselves up in opposition to Jesus. And so he says that this grumbling, complaining, discontentedness, uh, arguing, these are all signs of somebody really who dismisses the ways of God. And so if I'm supposed to do everything possible without grumbling or complaining uh, or being discontent or, or arguing, then how am I supposed to act then in all things? If I'm supposed to do all things without that stuff, how am I supposed to act in all things? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us that too, how the crowd with Jesus should have acted. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in how many circumstances? All circumstances. So, in all things, we're not supposed to grumble or complain, but in all things, we are supposed to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, in all things, all circumstances, we're supposed to give thanks, pray, rejoice. We're not supposed to grumble, complain, argue, be discontent. We're supposed to give thanks. You see, here's the thing. 
You cannot be grateful and complain. They can't coexist. You cannot be grateful and complain. Now, don't raise your hand because you'll instinctively cut your eye at this person if they're in the room. Just give a mental assent. Do you know any complainers? Anybody who, that's just, they just complain. And now if you think about that person, and I know you're all picturing people. Some of you are picturing somebody you're sitting by. Is that person grateful? That's how you would define them. No, because you can't be both. And if you know a grateful person, and some of us know those people, people who just, just exude thankfulness and gratefulness, they're not complainers. You cannot be both. I've known people, and I'm sure you do too, who at one point in their life were grateful, and then something got into them, and they turned into complainers, and they're no longer grateful. Because the two don't, they cannot coexist within the same body. You cannot be grateful and complain, which is why uh, Paul sets them up as opposites from uh, from Philippians chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances, not grumble and complain in all circumstances. Grateful people do not complain, and complaining people are not grateful. We need gratitude, not attitude, an attitude of complaining. We need gratefulness, gratefulness. You see, the people in the crowd with Jesus were not grateful. They weren't grateful for what Jesus did the day before. They're not grateful for the teaching Jesus is giving them about how to have eternal life. They're just complaining about what life should be like. And Jesus said, that, that offends you? That's just truth from Scripture. That's how you have eternal life is belief. And they were grumbling and complaining and discontented with their lives. You see, all those things are sin. I mean, grumbling and complaining and discontentment and, and arguing about differences of opinion, those are sinful things. In all things, God's plan for you is thankfulness. That's what he said in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Because I want you to notice something in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what follows that verse. Give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does it say? Do not quench the Spirit. So when we're not thankful, when we're not praying, when we're not rejoicing, we are quenching the Spirit, which means stopping the Spirit. So not being thankful, I mean, somebody who is being, uh, using Paul's uh, uh, thinking here, doing the opposite of being thankful, that is complaining and grumbling and being discontented and arguing, someone who's doing that is stopping the Spirit's influence on their own life and on the influence of those that are around them. You see, as a believer, the Spirit, I don't know if you all remember some months ago my illustration with, with, you know, a big pipe and the Spirit flows, supposed to flow through us into those around us. He's supposed to flow through us into those around us. We influence all kinds of people all the time, whether it's our family, our, our, our neighbors, our coworkers, just people we interact with, the person at the restaurant or the store. We interact with people all the time. We can influence them towards Jesus or away from Jesus. There's no neutral category here. And, and what... Paul is saying there in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 19, is we stop the Spirit's flow into us and thus into other people when we stop doing those things he just said in those previous verses. 
rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. So when we're just complaining, and it doesn't even have to be complaining and, and, and arguing and being discontented in our communication with other people, it can be internal as well. We say, well, I don't complain to other people. But if you're just complaining in your mind, it's poisoning your own soul, and it's still doing what Paul said there in 1 Thessalonians 5, stopping the spirit. Complaining is, com- com- complaining, like the, the parable I told you at the beginning with the, uh, the hen and the, the rabbit and the mouse, uh, complaining and a discontented spirit is poison that seeps into us and then into other people. And the only way to suck it out is with the spirit. An attitude of gratitude, not an attitude of a complaining heart. And so uh, this, this idea of grumbling and complaining and discontentment and, and arguing about different differences of opinion, this, these things usually aren't something that just you know, spring out of us instantaneously. They begin to take a while to warm up within us until we boil over. Like, I've got this kettle here. I use this in the afternoons to make coffee. It's not plugged in. It would be better for my illustration if it was, but I could not find an extension cord. So, we'll pretend it's plugged in. Um, This kettle, it's got a little bit of water in it. It doesn't have much. You can't really see it there. It's got a little bit of water in it. And it's got a button on the back. And when you push the button it begins to heat up. The base down here on the bottom connects to the bottom of this pot or this kettle and begins to heat up from the inside. It's not instantly boiling over. It takes it a little while. It takes it a minute. And it tends to be a little noisy. This isn't a quiet kettle. It's a little noisy when it does it. Right, Lamb? When I turn it, it's noisy. It makes noise. And that's what happens within us when that complaining and uh, uh, discontentedness and grumbling and argumentative spirit begins to rise, it rises slowly and gets louder over time until it bubbles up out of the top and spills on those around us. And the only way to stop it is to take it off the source of power. And then the only way to cool it down is to pour in something that's colder than what's in there. You can let it simmer out over time, but the heat is still there. But if you pour something cold in there, it will immediately cut the temperature down. And this is what happens when we have that complaining and and, and argumentative and discontented spirit is the only way to remove it instantaneously is to pour in the opposite of what it is, like cold going in, the opposite of the hot. The only way to do that is to pour in the opposite, which is, as we've just seen from the Scripture, a spirit of gratefulness, gratitude. And so I'm going to give you what, what I'm calling the gratitude challenge. And it's something that I've been practicing for a week. And I can tell you it works. Personal experience, it works. Every single time, it works. When you begin to feel within you a, a complaining spirit, a, a, a discontentedness, an argumentative nature, begin to list off things you're grateful for. Even about that person you're irritated with. And you know what happened every time? My temperature dropped to where it should be. 
Because that's what believers should be. That's what should define believers is an understanding of the greatness of God and our gratefulness for our salvation and his provision and his presence. Rather than doing that, though, when when that complaining nature rises, we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves or on somebody else and are comparing us to somebody else. And, And instead of having them fixed on Jesus, we have them fixed on somebody else. And we're missing what Jesus is saying to us there in the moment. We're missing the, the, the life of, of gratitude we should be living. The life, the abundant life that he created us to experience. And so that's the gratitude challenge. That when a grumbling or complaining or discontented spirit and argumentative nature begins to rise, it begins to bubble up, even just the, 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 the beginnings of it, that complainer who's in your life begins to speak something into you, like that crow in the parable at the beginning, begins to speak something into you, just immediately start listing things you're thankful for. Whether it's your family, whether it's your health, whether it's the fact that you're alive, whether it's the world, it's, just, it's salvation, it's Jesus, it's his influence, it's this one person who spoke that word to you so many weeks ago, and it's something you're, you, you have cemented on your soul because it's a powerful word of encouragement. And you're so thankful for that person. And you begin to list those things that you are thankful for. It will change everything within you. This isn't just some hum, you know, pie in the sky type of stuff. Like I said, I've been practicing this for seven days. And it works. That doesn't mean the enemy knows that you've now got the cure. He's just going to leave you alone. He's coming for you. Because he knows you've got the cure. And if he can get you distracted from God's answer in this area and miss what God's laying on you, he's going to do everything possible to do it. So we need to start listing the things we're thankful for. We need to change our perspective from being focused on us and and how bad we have it and rather begin to say how good we have it in Jesus because of his provision and his presence and his power and his faithfulness and his, his, his patience with us and how strategic he was in placing certain people in our lives to bring us to where we are and their influence and his influence. And we begin to list those things that we're thankful for. Then this grumbling spirit that began in the crowd, the grumbling spirit that was spoken of by Paul will not take us down. We'll take it down. we got to ask yourself, do you need something to be thankful for? Do you need something to be thankful for? Well, the trump card always in being thankful is in Jesus. Jesus died, the Son of God, so all of our sins would be paid for and forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so we can live after we die. Jesus did that for us in obedience to God. And if you want to believe in that, then now's your opportunity. You want to believe in something, you want something to be thankful for, believe in Jesus. The very thing he told this crowd that so many of them walked away, but Peter spoke up and said, you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. Well, I'm giving you the same words. Believe and have everything changed within you and in those around you. Believe in Jesus. 
today. If you're in the room and you want to believe in Jesus, I'd love to talk to you. Either, you know, in just a minute we're going to sing a song. I can talk to you then or I can talk to you after the service. Or if you're watching online or even in the room, you can just pull up our website, thequeen.church. And I think it's the, the second card on our website. It says, I made a decision. You just click on that and, and tell me, I think it's got a phone number, email, name, and then what your decision is. And it sends an email, as soon as you hit submit, right to my phone. And uh, I will be calling you today if you click on that whatever that decision is, and, and celebrating with you. And we'll talk about what to do next. What's the next step in the process then? What's the next step? If you believe, next step is baptism, showing the world you belong to Jesus. Next step, after you know, believing and being baptized, it's being a part of a small group. It's giving to the Lord. It's serving in his church. It's telling other people about Jesus. There's always next steps, and we can talk about those. But the first thing you got to do is believe. So believe in Jesus. And then I challenge everyone here in the room, watching online, listening to the podcast, take the gratitude challenge and for the next seven days, try it and see if your life isn't different. Try it and see if things don't change within you between now and next Sunday when that choir comes and we have that phenomenal concert. Try it between now and then and let's see what happens.